This is Wesley Huff. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Today on the podcast, I have the pleasure and privilege to chat with Andy Bannister. Dr. Andy Bannister is the director of the Solas Center for Public Christianity, based in Scotland. He is also an adjunct speaker for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and the former Canadian director of RZM Canada. So if the Canadian listeners recognize his name, he is a at least a former member of the Great White North. Uh, and he also holds a PhD in Islamic Studies from Oxford University and has lectured and taught at colleges and universities across the UK, Canada and the US. I actually had the pleasure recently of being one of Andy's teaching assistants at Wycliffe College this last year, uh, where he taught an online class on Christian apologetics at the University of Toronto. Andy, thank you for joining us. Wes, it's uh, great to be on the show and always good to be back in Canada, even if I'm, I'm only in Canada kind of virtually, but it's, uh, it's good to be there in, uh, in spirit. That's right. You, you at least get to experience the promised land virtually, even if you're not here anymore. That's it. I could I just feel the maple, uh, the maple leaf experience or whatever coming across the, the, the uh, Wi-Fi here. <laughs> Through the, the interwaves. The interwebs. That's the one, the interwebs. interwebs. Andy, uh, the reason I reached out to you was because you're currently writing a unique book upcoming writing projects. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what topic it's focusing on specifically? Yeah. So thanks for the opportunity, uh, kind of where, so yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I'm it, well, almost actually one, one chapter to go one chapter. So we are, the end is in sight. So I'm writing a book called do Muslims and Christians worship the same God. So an entirely non-controversial topic, no possibility there of, uh, of controversy in any shape or form. I'm mean, sure we'll dig into it in a moment, but the backstory to that is uh, back when I was in Canada, I was in Canada from sort of 2010 to 2016. And partway through that, I got a phone call from a friend of mine uh, down in Chicago who heads up an organization called the C.S. Lewis Institute there. And he asked if I'd come and speak. And uh, I said, what topic? And that was the topic he gave me. And I said, why that topic? And while that was around the time when, the, I forget the name of the lady, but there was a professor at Wheaton College down there who'd caused some controversy by basically coming out and saying, hey, Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And so I said, well, I'll come. I said, will it get an audience? He said, well, we're hoping to maybe get 100, 150. We got 900 or something like that. We This church was packed, absolutely overflowing, absolutely electric evening, huge Q&A afterwards. And I thought, hello, this is interesting. And then everywhere I've done that topic as a seminar since, Wes, I found audiences, it's packed. If I come and do like a conference and do four topics, you know, you do three of the usual apologetics ones, get a good crowd, do that one, it packs the house, the rafters. So I think it gets into a number of issues. It's very topical. And so, yeah, uh, when I, you know, when I, after my last book on atheism, I thought for a while on what to write next and was banning some of my ideas around uh, with my literary agent. And I happened to mention this. He went, well, that's it. You should do that, do that topic. And uh, we proposed it to IVP, uh, who were like, yes, please. So that's the plan. So as I say, it's nine chapters long, eight chapters down, one to go. A manuscript due to them in September, publication date, 18th of March, 2021. So it's quite exciting. That is exciting. That's interesting that that many people showed up 
for that particular topic? I mean, clearly it touched on a nerve. Where do you think that that the interest of that particular question comes from, especially when we think of the current narrative in our societies that, you know, religion is, it's on the negative decline, that more and more people, you know, were, were skeptical, were agnostic or atheist. And yet you have a, you have an event about Christians and Muslims and the concept of God and you pack out the house. Yeah, I think there's a number of things going on, Wes. I think the first thing is exactly that narrative you describe, the idea that, you know, religion is declining, often known as the kind of secularization thesis that, you know, as society gets more sophisticated, you know, we see far more coffee bars and far less religion. It's not actually the case. Religion is increasing. And actually, I start, that's the point I make at the very first page, the very first chapter, is that religion is growing everywhere. And actually, it's atheism that's in decline, which is interesting. You look at the numbers that things like the Pew Forum, which is a very well-respected think tank in the US, tracking religious issues globally, their numbers show that those who identify as, as non-religious, as atheist or agnostic, are in slow decline, whereas Christianity and Islam are particularly are growing rapidly. So I think there's that issue. Secondly, I think you know Islam has been all over the news. I mean, really, 9-11 changed that, but in over the last 20 years or so, uh, Islam has been sort of ever, everywhere, partly because the number of Muslims in the West has increased. I think more people are running into Islam. Um, then what we see is the kind of secular narrative or the kind of sort of postmodern narrative that all religions are essentially the same. So Islam and Christianity particularly, you know, they're, they're all the same. Let's just kind of get along with each other. And I think a lot of people have heard that, that sense that something is wrong. It doesn't smell right, but people don't know why it isn't right. So it taps into that. And I think the other thing that I think lies behind the question is it opens up a massive discussion around things like what do we mean by God? And I think people throw the word God around very loosely. And I come across agnostics and skeptics and well, agnostics and seekers really, who I think have sort of maybe figured out there is some kind of God, but then don't know what to do next. And that's quite an interesting topic for them and going, okay, well, you know, here's one of my arguments and one of my idea goals in the book is here is a book that if you're someone who's seeking, we can talk about two of the world's biggest religions in one go. And, you know, you can have a look at Islam and Christianity, at least, you know, we're not going to discuss Buddhism and other things. But, you know, if you're somebody who's interested and drawn to spiritual things, then this is an important discussion. Hmm. Yeah. So let's break this apart a little bit for the listeners. Why do you think that that particular topic is important for Christians in particular to understand, but also Muslims and even atheists and agnostics? Why does the question, does Christianity and Islam worship the same God? How does that speak into the understanding of that question speak into their lives and their belief systems? Well, there's a whole range of things going on, aren't there? So I think the first thing is I think a lot of Christians get quite confused uh, around this. And there are, there are sort of two traps that I think Christians can fall into when we think about our Muslim friends. One is sort of hostility. And there can be a lot of fear. And Christians react quite badly uh, when it comes to Islam. That can be, of course, because when we think of Islam, we think of terrorism, we think of extremism. Um, or we think of very strident, confident Muslims who you know, are quite sort of confident in what they believe, and that can make us quite nervous. And so there can be almost a fear and a, a sort of negative response to Islam. But then on the other hand, a lot of Christians, I think, fall into almost a syncretistic trap of sort of assuming they're broadly the same. And actually, I, I start the book autobiographically and saying that's how I was probably 20 years ago. I think if you'd asked me, I'd have said, well, you know, Islam and Christianity, I guess they're broadly the same. And actually, interesting, that's often the way they're taught 
you know, if you've had any, any comparative religion classes at school or university, you know, it's often presented that way. You know, here's Bob, he's a Christian, and here's Iqbal, he's a Muslim. Well, you know, Bob goes to church, Iqbal goes to the mosque. Uh, Bob follows Jesus, Iqbal follows Muhammad. Uh, we have the Bible, we have the Quran, we have the uh, minister, we have the imam. And you sort of line the columns up, and people look at that and go, oh, I guess they're broadly the same. But then people get very confused about, but hang on a minute, they also say some very different things. So I think that's for Christians. For Muslims, I think there's a whole other thing going on. Muslims have been taught that Islam is a sister religion to Christianity and to Judaism. And uh, the Quran makes that claim uh, in a number of places, but certainly Muslims have been taught that. And so I think Muslims are very sort of confused as to you know where Christians fit, why Christians aren't just following the final uh, revelation, which they believe to be the Quran through the Prophet Muhammad. And then, of course, atheists, you know, I think have a tendency of coming along and lumping all religions together. So a good example of that would be the new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins and Dan Dennett and others. Although that phenomenon is a bit old now, it's still around. But a lot of their vitriol against God, I think, comes because they lump all religions together. So Dawkins famously said, 9-11 radicalized me, to which one pushback would be, but, but Richard, that's Islam. And while we don't want to tar all Muslims with the same brush to go quite why you're, you know, throwing a hissy fit about Christianity when it was Islam that seems to be your problem. So those things all sort of jumbled in together, uh, where it's kind of led to me thinking, okay, we need to tease some things apart here. And that question, boy, it gets us into so many of those topics. Yeah, I think it's always easier to paint with a broad brush. And especially if you're doing, I, I can testify to that myself, doing, you know, intro to religion classes in my undergraduate studies and sort of ticking all those boxes off. Exactly what you described. You know, you have Joe who goes to an Anglican church and he has a, a priest and there's a minister and they meet on Sunday. And then you have uh, Ahmed and Ahmed goes to a mosque and he has an imam and, and they meet on Friday and, and that kind of thing. And I think the tolerance narrative that we have in our society that downplays the differences and increases the similarities that are really more superficial than not. I think it's just an easy, it's a simpler way to think about things rather than having to deal with all of the complexities. There was definitely something in what you said that I think is worth exploring more. Um, you, d you didn't address it directly, but there is a term that we hear thrown around sometimes, the Abrahamic faiths. To refer to, you know, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I, I actually even did an event last year at McMaster University with uh, myself, an imam, and a rabbi. And the heading was, should we leave the Abrahamic faiths behind or not? Um, I mean, it was sort of a weird title to begin with, because we were all included in this sort of category of Abrahamic faith. So obviously, our answer is no, or at least it should be no, as individuals of that faith. But that's a term we hear in the interfaith dialogue community. How do you think that plays into what you've been researching and writing about? Let me answer that. But just before we do that, just pick up on something you were saying before. I mean, that grid that I described and you just described where we sort of, you know, people sort of assume that you can just sort of line them up side by side. What fascinates me is we don't do that anywhere else. You know, you wouldn't say, hey, you know, an Airbus A380 and a Toyota Prius are largely the same. You know, a, a Prius has a petrol engine and a, and a battery engine. An Airbus A380 has jet engines. Uh, an Airbus A380 runs on kerosene. A, a Prius runs on, on electricity and smugness. You know, and you just sort of line the things up side by side. Somebody would go, well, well, clearly that's nonsense because you're ignoring the differences. And that's the thing that's often missed. 
But then you end up with these crazy idea ways of trying to merge them together, or at least bring similarity. And Abraham is is absolutely classic. You're dead right. That phrase is used. It's a relatively recent phrase. It's very interesting. I don't know if you've ever discovered or listeners have ever discovered. There's a wonderful. Um, tool that Google put together some time ago where you can search thousands, in fact, millions of books from the last 200 years looking for phrases or words. It's called the Google Ngram Viewer, N-G-R-A-M. If you put, I think it's ngram.google.com, you can type a phrase in and ping, it will trace it through the entire Google Books archive for every book they've ever scanned. And if you put Abrahamic faiths in, you can really see it's a relatively modern term. It It wasn't used until relatively recent times and then the interfaith movement got going and some bright spark had the idea of going hey well let's talk about these religions that way because they all refer to abraham but as um as other scholars have marked have remarked abraham is a very strange figure actually to try and build some kind of unity around them and if you think about it for a moment for our jewish friends who is abraham well he's the prototypical torah observant jew who is Abraham for Christians? Well, for Christians, he's the man saved by faith, not by works. That's the way that the New Testament, you know, really sort of uh, uses him. And for Muslims, he's the idol-destroying monotheist who rebuilds the Kaaba, uh, that sort of a uh, cube shape building there in Mecca. There's not a lot of similarity. So even the moment you bring Abraham onto the stage, we have to argue about, well, who is Abraham? What did he do? What did he achieve? What was his mission? What was he like? There really isn't a lot of unity there, so I think it's a it's it's a sort of again it's an attempt to kind of fudge the differences. I also think as well what's interesting, of course, is Jews and Christians and Muslims don't tend to go around thinking of ourselves as oh I'm an Abrahamic faith follower. You know, as a Christian, I think I'm a follower of, of Jesus. He's my Lord and my Savior. For my Jewish friends who are you know Torah observant, they are you know I guess Moses and the Torah would be important to them and uh, probably more so than Abraham. And then my, my Muslim friends, the person they want to talk about is Muhammad. They don't wander around going, I'm an Abrahamic follower. It's really only when you try and bring people together, like that setting that you described, that, that I think people have latched on to, well, let's talk about Abraham. Because look, he happens to be mentioned in the, in the Torah, the New Testament, and the Quran. But we need to look at what's said, not simply latch on the name. Yeah, there's a there's a fallacy that I see often used within our society called the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. And it's based on the premise of a Texan firing shots into the side of a barn and then going and, and finding the, the closest cluster that he, he can and then drawing the target around it and then making himself look like a great shot. The idea behind the fallacy is, you know, we concentrate on uh, the similarities and we ignore the differences no matter how far apart those differences are. And so if, if we can categorize Abraham in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, then it's it's a simpler way of describing things. It, it, in one way, it's a little bit of a naive way of describing things, but it's it might put it in a tidier box. Actually, the, the example that I usually give uh, when, when I talk about this in presentations is, is actually another Abraham, Abraham Lincoln, because uh, Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy uh, were both presidents of the United States, and they were elected 100 years apart. Uh, both were shot and killed by assassins who are known by three names with 15 letters. So you had John Wilkes Booth and you had Lee Harvey Oswald. And neither of those killers went to trial. And then if you really start to dig into it, you find out that Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy and Kennedy had a secretary named Lincoln. And they were both killed on a Friday while sitting next to their wives. Lincoln in the, in the Ford Theater and Kennedy in a Lincoln made by Ford. 
And not just that, but both men were succeeded by a man named Johnson, Andrew for Lincoln and, and Lyndon for Kennedy. And Andrew was born in 1808 and Lyndon in 1908. And so, I mean, if you capitalize on all of those, what seem like unusual, uh, very strange coincidences, then you could develop all sorts of conspiracy theories. But actually, if you start to look at the differences, well, the differences are pretty massive. And so I think when uh, I wonder if our society, uh, our society, maybe it's, it's easier, it's simpler to put things in this simple box and say, you know, well, this group is all part of the Abrahamic faiths. And don't worry about, don't worry about those massive differences. Um, if we can just sort of tidily bring this group together, despite all those things, really ignoring the central components of the faith where they disagree, then maybe it, it might be some way to create unity or a false sense of unity in that way. Um, well, you know, it's funny you say that, the false sense of, of unity, um, whereas because one of the one of the people I, inter I interact with briefly when I'm sort of setting up the thesis of the book and the first kind of chapter is uh, the Christian theologian Miroslav Volf. And Volf, very well-regarded Christian theologian, brilliant theologian. Actually. She's written some wonderful, wonderful books. But he's also written at least one terrible, awful, you know, real kind of howler of a book. And that's his book, uh, Allah, uh, A Christian Response. And in that book, that's basically his argument. He basically says, well, look, you know, we need to, we have, there's lots of warfare and division and uh, lack of unity in the world. We need to bring people together. And one way of doing that, particularly between Christians and, and Muslims, the two biggest faith groups in the world, is if we recognize that we worship the same God, we've got a basis then for kind of mutual understanding and working together and so on and so forth. And it sounds lovely and you read it and go, oh, bless, it's, oh, it's a lovely idea and it's very romantic. But it just misses a couple of things. Firstly, it misses the fact that there are Muslim groups who believe in the same God who've been killing each other for centuries, Sunnis and Shiites, you know, both believe in Allah, but there's been sort of bloody uh, infighting between them ever since the beginning of Islam. And of course, if I have to believe in the same God to be sort of kind and generous and compassionate to somebody, then that means presumably there's no hope for my Hindu friends, my Buddhist friends, or my atheist friends. My atheist friends don't believe in God, mm. but I don't feel the need to somehow go, well, actually, you know, you really do. You, don't, you, you may say you don't believe in God, but actually it's the same as believing in God, just so I don't have to kill you. Um, I find it quite possible to get on with, you know, rabid secularists, because in my case, I, as a Christian, I believe they're made in the image of God and uh, their value and dignity. I don't need to sort of somehow try and pretend we believe the same thing. And so I think the whole project gets off to a flawed start straight away and and it misses the big burning question of all what do you mean by the word god hmm in the different ways that you've been trying to approach this particular topic and and ways in trying to explain it and address it to a variety of audiences because um, you you don't know who's going to be reading your book christian muslim might be anybody in your experience what are some of the main misunderstandings that people have, maybe maybe let's concentrate on, on Christians have about Islam and Muslims have about Christianity. Well, I think so many misunderstandings was, come from the fact that Muslims and Christians, you know, use the same words or a lot of the same words, but the meaning is different. And, uh, you know, I was first switched on to the fact that words can mean very different things. In fact, when I came to Canada, because as a Brit moving to Canada in 2010, I discovered that you folks use words differently. The thing that first awakened me to that was the sort of first week or two after we moved to Canada, 
we had to go and see our immigration lawyer who was sorting out our um, permanent residency status. And we went and saw this uh, our lawyer and he was uh, an elderly gentleman in about sort of early 70s, uh, still working part-time, pretty large. Um, he was uh, pretty overweight actually. And uh, went, we went into his office and he was sitting behind this massive oak desk and he was a massive, massive man. And his opening line to us was, excuse me for not standing up to shake your hand, but I'm not wearing any pants today. Now you say that to a Brit, pants does not mean trousers. That means underpants. So for the next hour, we were trying to put this vision of a, of a lawyer who was naked from the waist down behind his desk out of our minds. Right at the end, he finally stands up on his walking stick and he was wearing shorts. And again, he said, excuse me, not wearing any pants today. I've just had varicose vein surgery. And I was like, why could you not have explained that at the start of the meeting? The word pants means something different in North America. It means trousers. It's what it means over here. And the same goes on in Islam. And it causes massive confusion. Muslims talk about God, sin, you know, salvation, mercy, grace, compassion, scripture, prophets. The list goes on and on and on. And as Christians, we use the same words. And we often assume that they just mean the same things. And our Muslim friends do too. And we talk past each other. And one of the things I'm always stressing to Christians and to Muslims is when we use a word, we have to ask what it means. And so for you know Christians listening to this, if you're talking to your Muslim friend and they use the word God, it's not rude. It's not a problem at all to simply at the right point of the conversation say, hey, just out of interest, use the word God there. And I understand you believe in God. Describe to me what do you mean by God? What do you mean by that word? And listen, ask questions. There'll be some similarities, sure, but there'll be a lot of differences. And that also opens up the opportunity for you to then say, well, that's really interesting. Yeah, I believe the same thing there, but I also believe some very different things over, over here. And you find that's the heart of the issue. And what I basically do in the book, we start with that question of God, but what we basically do in the book, whereas I take four questions, you know, who is God? Who are human beings? What's gone wrong with the world? What's the solution? And I show how in Christianity and Islam, the answers to those questions are fundamentally different, absolutely fundamentally different, which leads you inexorably to the conclusion that it is not the same religion and therefore potentially it's not the same God. Hmm. That's a really great note to hit on. And I think probably something that we as Christians should be doing no matter the context, asking, what do you mean by that questions? Uh, I can think of even discussions that I've had with atheists where they've described God and miscommunicating with one another until you, you ask them what they mean by God and find out that actually the God they don't believe in is also the God you don't believe in. And that completely changes the dynamic of the conversation. If they're going after the Richard Dawkins God of a homicidal megalomaniac, and you're trying to defend that, well, you end up defending something you don't believe in anyways. So that's a really good point to hit on with, with using the same words, but different lexicons in those contexts. How then, though, Andy, do you think as Christians, I mean, we're called, uh, as you very well know, in First Peter 3.15, but in your heart to revere Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. How, what is the best way that we can give an answer for the hope that we have to those coming from a Muslim background in understanding both this particular question and our worldview as Christians? Well, there's a whole kind of range of things there where we could talk about. But I think one of the one of the things I try and do in the in the book 
is a number of things. Firstly, I think is that uh, when you look at the characteristics of the God of the Bible, or the God of the Quran, they're very different. One of the biggest ones is love, interestingly, that most people think that every religion teaches that God is love. It doesn't. The Quran does not teach that God is love. That's categorically not there. What's fascinating is lots of Muslims, though, I think are drawn to the idea of a God of love. And I think that can be a way in with many Muslims. When I first used to hear Muslims saying to me things like, well, I believe that Allah is a God of love. I would often respond by going, no, 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 that's not right. And I would try and correct their theology. Now I take more of an Acts 17 approach. If you think of the scene in Acts 17, Paul is there in Athens, Old the Unknown God, very pagan city. Paul could have launched into this very strongly worded sermon critiquing the Athenians for their paganism. He doesn't. He says, oh, I saw this altar you guys had to the, uh, this unknown God. That's brilliant. Let me tell you who that God is. And I think with Muslims, we can use that as the beginning of a way in. Then I think the other thing we can use as a further step is then the question of what does it mean to be human? I think Islam has an answer that struggles there. In Islam, we are just slaves. We are certainly perhaps, you know, elevated over the rest of creation. But beyond that, you really can't go. And that gives you a problem when you then try and build like a foundation for things like human rights and dignity and value and justice. Things our Muslim friends are drawn to. Muslims are very often passionate about those things. I think as Christians, we can begin to explore you know, where the foundation of them lies. And obviously, you know, our friend and colleague, in your case, Andy Steiger, has written this that brilliant new book on what it means to be human. I think that is one of the most important questions of the age. And again, we can use that as a bridge as Christians. Then we come to the what's gone wrong with the world. And Islam really tries to say, you know, we need moral information. We're just a little bit forgetful. Here are a few commands, you know, keep them and the world will be a better place. But that singularly fails. You know, if that was all we needed, Muslim countries that have Sharia law should presumably be the, you know, far more moral, lovely places to live than the rest of the world. But I say in the book, it's not that they're any worse, it's they're no better. If you take things like the crime statistics and so forth for all the countries of the world and shuffled them and just had the numbers and said, can you divide this pile of cards into Muslim countries and non-Muslim countries? Can't do it. There's no difference. So Islam, in a sense, you know, I think has failed profoundly there, whereas Christianity, I think, is a much more honest diagnosis of what's gone wrong with us. It's our very nature has been corrupted by sin. It's far more serious. And I think that plays out in the real world. You simply have to look around the world to see that is a better description of reality, or simply try and keep your own standards, let alone God's. And that brings us to the last place I always like to talk about with Muslims of going, well, okay, if God really is loving and compassionate, would he just send some instructions and say, hey, you lot, you know, try and do better? Would he, if he could, actually do something about offering us the means of a rescue and some hope and something actually sorting out the problem that we can't seem to solve ourselves? It seems to me that we need help from outside. And that then leads nicely to then the question of who Jesus is. And that's basically the path I follow in the book. And uh, having gone through that framework, I then, in the next chapter, talk about the whole question of who Jesus is. And I think sometimes as Christians, we leap too quickly to the Jesus question with Muslims. Let's talk about Jesus and why we think he's God. And Muslims are like, well, hello. But I think if you can line the pathway up to that, and then you can say to your Muslim friend, now having discussed all these things, let me show you not only why do Christians believe what we believe about Jesus, but why it really matters. You know, why that is the best hope we have, why he really diagnosed that what's wrong with us so powerfully, why if he did, as the Bible says, give his life for us, that gives us incredible value and dignity. And why, if he was who he claimed to be, in Jesus, we most clearly see revealed what God is like and, and who he is and what he thinks about us. 
And as Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's where I want to take Muslims. But it can be a long conversation. I don't think you can do it in sound bites, whereas I don't think you can do it in shortcuts. It needs to be a conversation over time and ideally built around a friendship. Hmm. When you were talking, it reminded me uh, there was an event that I uh, attended a number of years back now with yourself Shabir Ali, and then uh, there was a an atheist. Justin a- Trottier. Yeah, Justin Trottier. And uh, remind me if you remember the, the title of the event, something like, how do we live in a oh, good it's, society? Um, what is the good society like? What does a good society look like and how do we get there? Yeah, and I think what was striking to me, which I've always remembered, is that um, both Trottier and uh, uh, Dr. Shabir really just prescribed more laws they prescribe more rules. If we can be more moral and get people to obey more uh, principles of morality, then obviously society would be better. And that that wasn't the approach you took. You talked about the fact that until hearts are changed, we're not really going to get anywhere. And I thought that that was, I mean, in one way, the obvious Christian answer, but I think naturally, we want to be able to feel like we're doing better. We want to jump on that treadmill of of morality. And I think that really flipped the script. It, I think it's certainly stood out for the audience. That I think so. Should, mm-hmm. but I think it's the big, you know, it really is the big difference. And, you know, one of the analogies I use in the book, it's interesting, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that one of the things we need to be searching for as Christian communicators is, you know, how do we help people understand through through analogy, through illustration? Jesus did it. And it occurred to me when I was writing the book, you know, a good analogy of that difference between Christianity and Islam. And I'd forgotten, you know, our secular friend, Justin there, had taken the same the same route. As you know, I'm, an, I'm a great outdoors guy. I love mountain climbing and uh, hence the Patagonia t-shirt and all the kind of usual stuff. And um, but let's imagine, I'm not a rock climber, but let's imagine that one day I get into my head, I'm going to try rock climbing. So I take a flight to California when we can fly again. And I decide I'm going to, I'm going to climb on my own with a rope on my own. I'm going to try and climb El Capitan, 3000 foot granite rock face there in Yosemite National Park, one of the hardest rock faces in the world. I get about 300 feet up it, actually. I do really quite well. And then it all goes badly wrong. I am stuck, badly, totally stuck on a tiny ledge. I can't go up. I can't go down over certain doom. And I am I am in real trouble. And I start screaming out for help. And obviously, having a British accent, that soon attracts people. And uh, I see, soon, eventually, two climbers end up at the bottom of the rock face. I look down. And one of them, I suddenly realize, is a guy called Alex Honnold. He's the best rock climber in the world. He's climbed El Capitan, not only on his own, but without a rope. In fact, there's a movie made about that called Free Solo. And I'm like, oh, fantastic. And next to him is some unknown dude who I've never seen before. And Alex starts shouting out advice. He says, oh, don't worry. I know the entire rock face, Andy. Move left a bit, perform this maneuver. You know, if you, if you remember sort of page 13 of my book, you can do this. And he shouts out instructions and commands and advice and it's no use because I ain't going anywhere. It doesn't matter. He's the best rock climber in the world. Advice isn't going to help. The other guy, the unknown climber, don't know him from Adam, he says, don't worry, Andy, stay exactly where you are. I'm going to rope up and come get you. And he, he proceeds to rope up and come get me. doesn't matter that the other advice was the best advice in the world. I needed more than advice. I needed rescue. Hmm. And I think the same is going on in terms of morality and ethics and the way that we live. I think you can have the best moral information in the world you know i'm i doesn't in one sense worry me whether the the quran's moral advice is good bad or average even if it was the best moral advice in the world we can't follow that arguably jesus shows us that actually you know jesus said things like love your enemies 
and pray for those who persecute you. That's incredible moral advice. And if Jesus simply left it there and gone, that's the standard suckers, you know, you know, get on with it, we'd be in real trouble. Thankfully, he offers more than advice. He offers rescue. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of putting it. Thanks for that, Andy. I, I know you just said we can't interact with Muslims through sound bites and without relationship, but here's a question to completely throw a wrench into your last statement. If you were in a conversation with a Muslim and you knew you only had about five to ten minutes, what would you say and how would you say it? Well, there's a couple of things I think I would do to be cheeky rather than give you one soundbite. I think whereas you and I are both believers in questions. And, you know, listeners to this podcast will have picked up that, you know, questions are key. So good question. And in fact, Greg Kokel, who's a wonderfully gifted evangelist, wrote a wonderful book called Tactics that many of us may have heard of. He's got a lovely phrase in that book where he talks about putting a stone in somebody's shoe. It's a brief conversation. How can you place an idea that nags away at them? Here's a couple of questions I would I would use from my Muslim friend. The first thing I might try is this one. I might say, my friend, how do you know or can you be sure that you're going to heaven? Is the first question. Now, of course, if they're a very good Muslim, they might say, well, I, I can't be sure. I can only hope. Then I just push it a bit further. I say, well, how can you have, are you more than 50% certain, less than 50% certain? Really, I want to try and get to where their foundations lie and just shake them a little bit. And Muslims are trained to be modest. You know, Muhammad famously said that he didn't know whether he was going to heaven. So I'd push on that eternity question. Related to that, the other question I would push on is the whole question of sin. You know, be direct. If it's a Muslim, you know, say to them, my friend, you know, it seems to me that the problem that you have is that you're a sinner. Now, I'm not picking on you because I think I've got the same problem. How then can we ever be sure or have any realistic hope of coming into God's paradise? Now, those are two questions I might start with. Again, if your Muslim friend's being very Islamic, he or she might say, well, I just trust in God's mercy. Mm. And again, you might ask why. But here's the other question I like to get to, Wes, is, is to say to them, even if you get there, let's grant that you get there, that Allah is merciful and forgiving and you keep enough of commands and you gain enough moral brownie points. How can you be sure you're going to stay in heaven? Because if you read the pages of the Quran, you discover the story of Adam and Eve. The Quran has borrowed it from the Bible, but it relocates it into heaven. So Adam and Eve, their story takes place in heaven. Their fall, as it were, takes place in heaven. So Adam and Eve in the Quran sin in paradise. If I were a Muslim, that would give me huge trouble. And I've used that question to powerful effect with Muslim friends saying, even if you get there, how can you not be sure that after a day, a week, a month in paradise, you do something daft, you do something stupid, you sin and you're cast out and the whole thing repeats because it happened to Adam. And that allows you to say, look, as a Christian, you see, not merely do I believe that I don't have to earn my way to paradise, but I believe that Jesus has done the work for me because I can't do it on my own. I also, as Christians, and we don't talk about enough about this one, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit working within us to transform and change, renew, sanctify us. So the Andy, the Wes, the Christian who will walk and talk in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus will be human being 2.0. We'll have been upgraded. We'll have a new nature, as it says in the New Testament. You know, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And so we don't have that fear because the old sinful nature will be gone. In Islam, there is no salvation, there is no saviour, there is no redemption, there is no Holy Spirit, there is no sanctification, there is no new nature. There is only good old-fashioned human being 1.0, weak and fallible and prone to failure. 
And so I think that raises all kinds of questions. So those are the areas I like to play in, but I like to do it through asking questions mm. and, uh, and pushing and prodding a little bit prayerfully. You know, when your Muslim friend is answering, pray quietly, listen to the leading of the spirit, hoping that you can plant a stone in their shoe that, okay, you've only had five minutes, but then either you or maybe another Christian can then pick up another time. Hmm. While you were talking, it reminded me, after I graduated high school, I went back overseas. I I grew up a missionary kid in the Middle East, but uh, I didn't totally know what I wanted to do going into post-secondary education. And so my missionary parents sort of figured, well, they knew how to solve that. And so they sent, sent me back to the Middle East. So I ended up working for a little bit in Jordan in this small village on the road between uh, Amman and Aqaba, just in a small vi- small village where, you know, only a, a few dozen people in it. The family that I was working with would routinely go into the, the next biggest town, Ma'an, and uh, pick up provisions for the villagers. And there's one time where I was, they had a, an old Toyota Land Cruiser, and I would sit in the back in the in, in the open part. And there was an older gentleman from the village who wanted to go into town with us. And so he sat in the back with me and I was trying to practice a little bit of my, my Arabic. And so I was talking back and forth with him and he'd just come back from his Hajj, from his pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, so for the, the listeners who don't know, there are five pillars within Islam. Uh, the fifth pillar being Hajj, the uh, pilgrimage to Mecca. If you're uh, physically able um, and financially able, every Muslim is, is supposed to make this pilgrimage to Mecca to the Kaaba, which is um, what Andy referred to earlier. And he dyed his beard red, because occasionally that's what men do as a sign to show that they've done this. And I was asking him some questions about it, and he was telling me, you know, he felt that this pilgrimage had made him clean, that he felt free, that he felt lighter. And he was just so relieved to have done it when he was able to do it and all of this. And there was a pause in the conversation, and he said, you know what, I know I'm going to have to do it again. I know I'm going to have to do it again because I know that this feeling is fleeting. It's not going to last. And I remember looking at him and thinking, that's a burden that he's carrying, uh, that he feels like he has to just continually do more and more to, to try to chase this, this feeling of freeness, of propitiating for his own sins. And to my chagrin, I mean, I didn't interact with him as much nearly as much as I should have. And and to this day, I still regret not pushing into those questions. But it it always stood out to me, you know, him just describing, he's an older man, but almost with a giddiness, how how free he felt, how light he felt, and then stopping and saying, but you know what, I'm probably gonna have to do it again. Years down the road, that was, that was going on a decade ago now, thinking, you know, I know that freedom. And I don't have to go back to continually do that pilgrimage. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think the other thing as well was that story you told there reminds me of, and we touch on this in the book in several places, is that, you know, what I find fascinating is the Quran in a number of places describes Allah as uh, as forgiving. That language is used in the Quran. But one of the things that occurs to me is, you know, forgiveness by its very nature has to be free and not earned. If you, you know, one day do something horrendously rude to your wife at breakfast because you're tired and you slept badly the night before and, you know, come the evening, you feel very guilty. And so that evening you say to your wife, honey, I'm really sorry. I was so rude to you. Will you please forgive me? And she says, of course, Wes, I'll forgive you. All you have to do is take the trash out every day for the next six months, buy me chocolates once a month and flowers every weekend, and then I'll forgive you. Well, that's all very well. She hasn't forgiven you. 
that's economics. She's named her price. This is my price. This is the payment. And if you pay it, then uh, you know you've you've cleared. But that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is is free to the receiver. It's always the one who gives the forgiveness who has to pay. If your wife, on the other hand, says, "Yeah, okay, I'll forgive you," she's the one who has to carry in her heart what you've done and choose not to remind you of it next time she wants to score some points, and so on and so forth. And that's what the God of the Bible has done. You know, forgiveness is is free. You know, Romans five verse eight talks about that. While we are still sinners, while we are still His enemies, Christ died for us. That's how God demonstrates His love and His forgiveness. And Islam, on the other hand, you know, like your friend there. Uh, in Jordan, I think said it was, you know, you've got to go on pilgrimage. You've got to keep the commandments. You've got to work very hard and earn and earn and earn and earn so that you can pay Allah off economically. And to make it worse, he doesn't fully tell you the price. You hope that it'll be okay, but you can never be, you can never be totally certain because you haven't actually received the invoice. The, the exact bill is unknown. Completely different model. On the one side, we have Sharia and law keeping. On the other side, we have grace and genuine forgiveness. Costly, very costly forgiveness, but it's not costly to us. It was costly to God and he paid it in and through Jesus. Hmm. Maybe next time you can come up with a more relatable example. I don't think I've ever been tired and and that has negatively affected my marriage with my wife. I'm sure you're just an absolutely perfect husband, um, kind of wears. Uh, absolutely. I'll leave that one alone. We'll end there. That's a a good note to end on. Andy, thank you so much for uh, letting me uh, discuss this topic with you and sharing a little bit about your upcoming writing project. It's always a pleasure to be able to talk with you and have you on the podcast. Well, it's been great fun. Uh, Wes, love what you're doing and love what what Apologetics Canada are doing and the team. So uh, yeah, I'll be with you. You've been listening to another edition of the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about. Thank you so much for listening.